Lord, this is not just the only church. It is all your blood-bought children around the globe. It does not matter what language they speak, what culture they live in. If they have been blood-bought by your finished work on the cross, they are the church. We find great comfort, Lord, that we do not stand alone here in Ormond Beach. We have brothers and sisters around this earth, all waiting for the same Savior. But as we wait, sharing his truth, his gospel, his message to the lost, we thank you that the church is very much alive. There's a great war against it, but you are the one who has conquered. You are the overcomer. So I pray this morning as we look into this glorious text on missions, that we will be encouraged. We will ourselves preach the gospel to ourselves to begin with each and every day and to those who come along. I pray this morning that we would be highly encouraged not to hide this beautiful lamp under a bushel. We would set it on a stand. We would set it on a hill, light and bright. It's what the world needs. The world's a wreck. Depravity is destroyed. The hearts and lives of this world. But Christ, you are the answer. And so we pray that we'd be encouraged as we look into this word. Lord, thank you for the church. We thank you that we could come together and sing such strong voices this morning. Singing the praises of the one who rescued us. What a joy, Lord. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries. What a joy to spend time with each, some of them, even this last few weeks. Lord, I know each and every one of them are doing this. They're praising and preaching and studying and reaching out in evangelism. Lord, they're serving you when we pray that you would strengthen them. You cause them to be encouraged. And I pray that Riverbend Church is an encouragement to our missionaries. They know that we pray for them. We give to help them. I pray they would find great comfort that they have like-minded brothers and sisters here in Ormond Beach. Lord, we thank you for all those who are here today. We know it's a holiday of independence for this great nation we live in. But Lord, as much as we celebrate that, we celebrate even more our dependency upon you. And so we pray that we would see that we have nothing without you. And you would strengthen our dependency upon you. And Lord, where the areas where we are living independent of you, we would repent of that. We'd walk close with you. We do thank you for all that are here. We're so grateful to gather. We do think of those who couldn't be here. Some are vacationing, some are off getting a breath and relaxing somewhere. We pray they have time in the word. We do pray for those who are going through surgeries and physical and, and spiritual trials, Lord. I pray you would comfort them. Cause them to turn to you. Now, Lord, may your word come off the pages to us. May it cause us to be gripped by your truth and to know you in a great way. I praise, this, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think Revelation 5 is one of the greatest mission passages in all the scriptures. It is a book of end times, isn't it? It's showing us a glimpse of the ultimate end things. I find great comfort every time I study this passage. And again this week as I began to work through it again, I found the glory of the Lord shining so brightly in this passage. Such great reminders. 
when you look at chapter 5 of Revelations, you see these final things happening, but you see them centered around Christ and his throne. That's what our lives are supposed to be like now. <laughs> but then we see it there. All things have come to an end. They've all been brought to a finality. And there are all of the elect, all of the men and women, all of the young and old, from all of time, they're gathered before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ in absolute worship of Him. The worship is in response to the saving work of God. They're worshiping not because what they've received, not because of the gold streets and the mansions and all the things that we often get caught up. They are worshiping the one whom was slain. They are captivated by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the efforts of the sovereign mission work of our Lord and Savior. His work has drawn people from every corner of the earth. From the entire earth, from the entire globe, all the tribes, tongues, languages of people are there in this passage. And we see that Christ's mission work is directly tied to this sovereign plan that God laid down before the foundation of the world. And he missed nobody. They're all there. Every one of them. Everyone that God drew to himself, Jesus lost none of them. And they're there. And they're there from everywhere. You see the Trinitarian involvement in this passage. You see the Spirit's eyes, of seven eyes, the, the term of perfection and completion, watching over all that's happening. The sovereign plan of God laid down before the foundation of the world and of Jesus Christ who executed it perfectly. The Bible in this chapter really helps us answer the question, why do missions? It's because this is God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is God's goal. This is why the church is dedicated to missions, because it's God's plan. And we are dedicated till the Lord returns. Churches commit to worldwide missions. They commit to doing what God's doing. You understand that? If we don't do missions the way God wants us to do missions, and there are a lot of people who do missions, but if we do it God's way, if, if we're doing it His way, we're joining what He's doing. You've heard me say this many times, I think it's too often, and we are probably guilty of that as well. We try to tell God what we're going to do and see if He'll come along with what we're doing. Isn't that foolish? You find yourself praying that way often. Why don't we change that and say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in North Africa? What are you doing in the Asian continents? What are you doing here in Florida? And can I join you in your work? See, one of the things I love about Revelation 5 is it's a proof that God is saving. Those people are all of those people that we've been witnessing to, praying for, giving to. God is going to gather them. The question is, are we going to be involved with them? Is Riverbend going to be there? Are we going to be the one that God uses to reach these nations? I love the spread of the glory of Christ. I love to tell people what Jesus has done. You love to do that? When's the last time you told somebody what Christ has done for you? There's no greater message in the world. There's nothing more important than that. 
their lives, their destiny rides upon that truth, isn't it? We, we have the truth that gives people eternal life if God so deems it. What a message. Jesus Christ died for sins. There's no other way to get them paid for. There's no amount of deep knee bends, no amount of Hail Marys, no amount of, of groaning and moaning. There's no amount of works. Nothing can get you have, to have your sins forgiven but the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a rejected message. We just came from some places, and I'll share with you, on Wednesday that so few Christians, so few, and so few workers, very few there. So I study this text, and it just makes me want to go again, <laughs> and again, and again, because it promised me, it's promising right here that those folks, those in Japan and Philippines and wherever else we go around the world, God is promising to save them. He's going to have people from every tribe, tongue, language. He's going to have them in front of him. And that's his goal. And so we want to help spread that message. Well, I think one of the things that drew me to preach on this was my first point here. And I want to explain this. I, I, as I traveled this year, I think more than ever, I see this long war against God. In fact, long war against God's mission. It's constant. And so on your first point, I wrote globalization and the rejection of God's created order wars against the design for missions. I know that's lengthy, but I want you to think through that with me. When I was growing up, I remember in the church that they were always talking about, oh, the one world government. And some churches got really into that in the 70s and early 80s, and they were fighting against that and all of that. And, and then something would happen with the dollar, and see, it's all coming, and, you know. Well, I think they were right. <laughs> I, 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 more than ever have I seen the goal of Satan in this world of globalization. See, they're fighting against God, aren't they? God loves this world, and he created it in such a way that they were to fill it and to subdue the world, and they were to cover the world and even change their language. I'm going to show you this in a minute, so that he would have nations and, and peoples and languages and tribes from all over the world that he would win to himself and bring them before them. But the world's not after that. The world wants everything mixed together, but not God. God wants the uniqueness of his creation to show his glory and grace that he can draw people from all cultures, from all languages, and bring them before and give them one voice before him. And that's his goal. We see plummeting birth rates. Very interesting. We're in Japan for a couple of weeks. Japan's in all kinds of trouble, along with a lot of other nations. Their birth rate has dropped well under 2.1. Anytime you get under that, you're not going to, no longer in time going to be a nation. Germany's already gone. Many other nations are following it. They're no longer going to be the nation of their heritage because they can't have enough babies. And the ones they do have, they often what? They kill them. And so the nations are struggling. Now, there's all kinds of articles coming out about this now. They're not caring about babies and, and all of that. They're caring about the economics. 
Because if you have a class that's retiring and you don't have enough workers, you've got all kinds of problems, don't you? So it's money, isn't it? But God has a big problem with that. He loves the nations. He loves Japanese and Filipinos, Africans and Americans, Latins and all kinds of races and languages. He loves them and he loves to draw them to himself. And so we have a world that's fighting against God. They're fighting against God's plan for missions. There's a constant loss of nationalism that's going on. They're fighting against it. Yet God is at war. It goes worse when you start to think about the homosexual movement, the alphabet people, and all the other things that are going on out there. You begin to realize that's part of that war, isn't it? They haven't quite figured out that two males cannot produce children. And two females can't produce children. That's a problem with your nation. It's going to die. See, all of that is attack against God in the way he formed this world that we live in and all of our races and culture and, and his goal of moms and dads and children and filling his globe so he can gather those. So evident in some of the Asian nations we pass through and we're in, the career is driving everything. It's bad here too. Men and women don't get married. They choose to live together, and now often they don't want kids because they need both incomes to have the lifestyle they want. And so you have such a little amount of children. There's not much children on the globe anymore. Do you know that? There are not a lot of children on the globe. It's, it's lower than it's ever been because man is consumed with himself. And so we have plummeting birth rates. We have loss of nationalism. And we have physical and personal idolatry. We enjoyed our time in Japan as well. Every day we'd get up and ride the train system to go do what we were doing. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of young professionals. Very few rings on fingers. Very few married. All pushing for that career. And yet God has given the command to marry. And not only marry, but if he opens a womb to have children. And yet this is not the plan of man. And so this long war against God's missional plan is out there, and you see it when you travel. Now then you get in the church. It's so interesting. We, we see such small groups of families anymore when we travel. Not, uh, uh, not, not the family groups that you used to see, unless you're in the Muslim world. They're trying to have as many children as possible. The rest of the world is not doing a very good job with that. But then you get to the church. It was so interesting. We were in the church in Japan. I'm going to show you pictures on this on Wednesday. And the church is full of young families with three, four children in some cases. In Japan, that's unheard of. Then there they are. They're full of smiles. And, and, and they want to talk about Christ and the word. And there's such joy in their hearts. Such, such sweet fellowship. It was like stepping into our church with a different language. And you see what happens when people are gripped with the gospel. There's an obedience to what he says. 
to be fruitful and multiply, to be part of what God's doing, to be part of this collection of people around the world called God's elect, God's children, to, to share that message with the world. There was such an excitement among those small groups. And yet, as their own nations look at their problems, they have no desire to fulfill what God wants. Well, I think as you turn to Revelations 5, you see the great problem here. A, in your outline, I wrote the sinful results of unworthy, depraved world. Look at the first four verses. I saw in the right hand of him, that's Jesus who sat on the throne, a book, that's the Father who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. And then I began to weep, John says. I wept greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Well, here in verse 1, you begin to see the problem's depravity, isn't it? Here these first verses represent the depravity of man. There's a book in the hand of God and there's no one who can open it. All are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody is worthy to open this book. And this book is the title deed to the earth. To open the book, someone must be pure and perfect. They must be powerful. And they must be able to handle all control of all things. They must understand the sovereign plan of God and the purpose of God within it. And the need to the book, the need to open the book, shows that this condemned world needs answers. But they have none on their own. They have no power on their own. They cannot break those seals. We find man in a sorrowful state. Angel cries out. John looks on and wonders, is someone going to come forward? Who is going to redeem this world? Who is going to take man from his ruined state, from his bondage that he lies in, from his, his life of no hope for freedom? That's those terms of slavery that we see in here. Notice in verse 2, there's, no one can meet this charge. The angel proclaims it with a great voice. He's shouting and that all can hear. Is there anyone who can open this? The deliverer must be worthy. Someone with impeccable purity, unstained with sin, holy, holy, holy. Must be the one who comes forth. One who doesn't need redemption himself. It's a very small group, isn't it? Verses 3 and 4, you notice that there's no one qualified, bound in all of creation to break the seals and look into this title deed to the earth. The search is fruitless. All of mankind is condemned. There's nobody worthy. The sorrow is overwhelming as John begins to weep, isn't it? And you just can't miss it where it says twice in this, no one, no one is worthy. I think so often as I hear 
quote Christianity preached today, it seems like everybody's worthy. You're good. God needs you. That's just not in the text, isn't it? There's none righteous. No, not one, right? There's none who seek after God. That's, that's the state of man. That's where he's at. This is why there's such a need for this Savior to come and to break these seals and open this book. It is the book of life. Second, we see that Christ has his Father's missional plan in his sights. And even the depravity of the world can't stop him. Look at verse 5 with me. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. <laughs> Behold, the lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. Listen, stop weeping because there's one who is all-powerful. There is one who has all authority. He's representing the sovereign Lord, and he's in a description of a lion. In fact, he is the overcomer. It's another name for our Lord, isn't he? He's the overcomer. This proclamation is of his past victory. The victory was at the cross. It was all done. It was finished. He completed it. There needs to be no more. It is finished. Three of the greatest words Christians love dearly. It's finished. Don't add to it. Your works won't get you to me. Your heritage won't get, me to, get you to me. Your bloodlines, your goodness that you think you have, which you don't, none of that will get to me. It's all going to be through my finished work. He is the lion. See, that, that just marks his supreme power and authority and purity. All the way back in Genesis 49, as, as Israel, Jacob, was handing out the promises to the sons, he comes to Judah and he says, you will be the lion of Judah, and the scepter will never leave your hand. All the way from the beginning, it's pointing to Christ as that lion who comes, who can overcome even lost mankind calls the, calls the lion the king of the jungle. They know it's a statement of authority and power. And here he is coming from the center of the throne. This lion that is full of purity and power to open this book. He has the power to break its seals. There's nothing like him. And the text is trying to teach us that. There's nothing like Christ. They've searched the globe, and there's no one like him. And there he is, coming forward, possessing honor and purity and power. But he's also possessing deity. Look at verse 7. And he came, and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who can do that? I'll take that, Father. There's only one other. There's only one other that could hold that book. It was the Son taking it from the Father. He's fully equal with God. He's able to take that book. He's able to break its seals because He is God. He shares full deity, full essence, full nature. He's the exact representation of the Father. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 all teach us that truth. And notice that He's 
equal in receiving praise and worship. I love chapter 4 as well. Chapter 4 really focuses on the Father. Chapter 5 focuses on the Son. Both show great adoration to God. They're equal in worship. Look at verse 8 with me. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Here you see this matchless power of Christ bringing praise from his elect, bringing praise for what he has accomplished. And Christ has delivered salvation where no one else could. He's disarmed Satan. He's beat him. And he has the right to that book. The overcomer became the overcomer at the cross. I think it's why we're so captivated with the cross, why we sing about the cross and the gospel and the resurrection. We're so captivated because we know if he doesn't come off that cross, if he doesn't come out of that grave, we'd have nothing. He's not our overcomer. But notice in verse 6, he's not just a lion, he is a lamb. There is this double image of him. One of authority and power and ability to break seals and open books. But then there's this view of a lamb that is slain. He's in the central place of the scene. He's coming from the center of the throne. He looks at him a little closer and, and he, he sees a lion, but within that he sees a lamb. One that was just not a lamb, but one that was slain. Such great contrast between the lion and the lamb. Certainly the lamb would reference the pet lamb of Exodus. that was brought into their home and lived with them and resided with them and then was sacrificed for them. This is the teaching and the character of the lamb. He has all power like a lion, but he is willing to lay down his life like a lamb. Isaiah says it best in chapter 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb he was led to the slaughter, and like sheep that were before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But notice in verse 6, the lamb is standing. See that in there? He's standing. The lamb is resurrected. The lamb is alive. And he's worthy of worship. It's worship because he was slain. He was your substitute. He's worthy because he beat death. He beat Satan. He beat sin. And now he's standing in victory. Romans 3 tells us the just for the unjust. What a statement. The just, the righteous one, for the unrighteous one. Same word. That's what it was. Here, all the nations, all the elect from every tribe and tongue and people group are there, overwhelmed with the power and glory and meekness of our, of our Savior. Notice he has seven horns and seven eyes. Well, horns are the business side of an animal. <laughs> you don't mess with the horns of a bull. That's how he protects himself, and it shows power and authority. But then there's this lamb with meekness. And so I think what the text is doing is to show us that we have a God who's powerful and that has all the authority to open the books, break the seals, and fulfill everything that God has said and done. And yet he's meek and gentle. And he's a substitute. 
and he bled for us. That's our God. Is that your God? Or is your God a Jesus in a genie bottle? Give me what I want, and then I'll worship you. See, true Christianity is built around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're called Christians. We follow the lion and the lamb. We worship both aspects of him. He's our all-powerful, mighty, meek Savior, isn't he? And we adore him. He leads us and guides us. And this is what every missionary endeavor, whether that's sharing Christ at the supermarket or getting on a plane and going somewhere, training pastors or church workers, that is what we do because the gospel has motivated and gripped us. Are you going to share Christ with somebody this week? Are you going to have your soul heavy for somebody who you'll pray for and plead with? I mean, this, you, you have all the recesses. You have the lion and the lamb right there with you to do this. And he's given you his perfect word that will not fail, will not return void. I love the horns. We used to cut horns off of cows because they, they'll wreck you. <laughs> they'll go through your horse's belly. They'll all kinds of problems because they were power. And Jesus has matchless power. There's, no, there's nothing that can match it. He, he has all the power in the world. He spoke creation. Even in his earthly ministry, he made water still. He even walked on them. He created bread and fish. He, he's the bread of life and, and the living water. He satisfies your soul. All of those things proved it. he is God and he is the Savior of infinite power. He's also all-knowing. Notice the Spirit. He works in conjunction with these seven eyes of the Spirit. Tells us he sees everything. He's everywhere. There's no greater comfort when you get on a plane, fly into a Muslim country, and you're down in the middle of nowhere land, and you meet Christians. And you go, you're here, God. You're doing exactly what you promised you would do. If we lift you up, you will draw all men to yourself. That's what he does. And he's there, and, and you realize the power and authority of Christ is not just in, in America. He's everywhere. Notice letter C, all nations, is the target of Christ's missionary work. I love verse 9. What a verse, what a song. They is all the redeemed. They sang a new song. Saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Well, notice this song of praise just erupts, and it erupts in the center of this scene, by the redeemed. The redeemed cannot hold it in any longer. And they begin to sing this new song, giving Christ worthiness for who he is and for what he's done. It's clear he has the authority to take the book from the Father's hand. It's clear he has the power to break the seals. But here is the main verb, because you were slain. Because you died for us. 
You shed your blood for us. You cleansed us through a finished work on the cross that no one else could do. And that just brings the, the praise, pulls it out of the souls of all of these people around the throne. Can't help but see that this is the single-minded focus of Christ. He came to be slain. He didn't come to build his kingdom at that time. He came to be slain. And because of it, the saints realize it in its simultaneous explosion of worship. It's solemn, respectful, yet it's full of awe and power when you study this. Notice in verse 9 again that Christ's purchase of people from every walk of life. It's magnified in this text. He wants us to get this. He wants us to understand this. This was not just Jesus' family on earth. This was not just his earthly countrymen. This is the entire world now. People from every walk of life are there. And, and when you look at this, the worshipers are stunned at his redemptive power. They're captured by the glory of Christ. Are you captured by Jesus? What was your prayer life like this week? Full of asking of God of things? Or were you captivated by him? You captivated by a Savior who would hang on a cross for you. And he has the power to hold all things in his hands. Power to fulfill the Father's will completely and perfectly. Are you in all of that? Are you in awe of a Savior so great and so mighty? You will be someday. But I think it starts now. See, I, I don't want to kind of wake up to this in this scene. <laughs> I want to do this now. My, my, my heart just was so encouraged this morning. We, we just came from singing, and they're, they're singing in their dialect, and we're singing in ours and trying to follow along in some way, but so happy. People with nothing. I, I, you'll see the pictures on Wednesday. These, these dear brothers and sisters have nothing and they come and they give whatever they have. They, they give a portion of whatever they have, which isn't much. And they serve and serve and serve one another. I watched pastors leave, again, this national conference that I did. No hope that they're going to see, I mean, not, hoping they'll see each other, but not for sure. Last conference we were at, there was a young man there headed off to the Dabuli tribe. He was shot in the back of the head. We met his widow and his three children and her three children you know what i i looked for her all week where i finally found her she was in the kitchen cooking for all the pastors and their wives serving with all her might see she, she's captured she has nothing she's lost her husband she's lost her land she lost everything all that went back to the tribes that were there she now lives in a home that was built for her on the property and and she serves now that's all she has is just to serve the lord and she's full of joy. You'll meet her someday in this chorus. This, this group, you're going to meet her. And you'll hear her. She'll be singing at the top of her lungs, just like you. I love this passage. It says you purchased, or your Bible might say ransom people for God. Purchased. Do you look at Christians that way? Christians are a pain, right? We're a pain. We're selfish. We have all kinds of family problems and issues going on, don't we? 
We're trying to make money and pay bills and we get lost in all of that. Well, look what Jesus did. You want to talk about a great financial gain we received? He purchased us. And, and it wasn't just a, a tenth of his wages. Just think about that for a minute. And how many give a tenth even? Christ gave it all. He gave his life. See, the, the redeemed are singing because they know that this all-powerful, mighty, meek Savior gave everything for us to be in his presence. See, that's, that's captured by the glorious person of Christ. I just, I don't want to be here and finally be captured. I want to be here and be captured. I want him to be enough on Monday when it's difficult. I want him to be enough when the doctor says those difficult words. See, that's what I want. I, I'm working on that still. Surrendering. So he's everything. So, so you're anticipating. When you're in heaven, you're anticipating this. You've lived a life for him here. You're anticipating when you're in this scene. Hey, here it is. This is where we're going to sing the new song. I've been waiting for this. Are you so caught up in this life that something like this is so far out of reality? And every time we sing a song, sing it at the top of your lungs. I don't care if you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Sing it. Get practicing. This choir's coming. Well, I began to think about this war against God. I, I'm seeing it everywhere as I travel. And I thought, Lord, I, I, this, is, this is the clear command of the scriptures for you. You told us to fill the earth. And I started, you can go with me, go with me to Genesis chapter 1, and I'll, I'll walk you through this. I just quickly want to show you this. I'm going to keep an eye on the time because I'm all wound up and I'm tired. Those are two powerful things. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Really the first command we ever hear from God outside of commanding his creation to, to, into existence. His first commandment to his people is found in chapter 1, verse 28. Verse 27, he made them male and female. Hmm, we should remark the, uh, mark that well in our Bibles. You know the joke. Made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. It's clear. God loves gender. It's what brings him great glory. It is such an important thing to him. And when the world goes after it, the alphabet people are going after it, look, they are attacking God. That's their goal. Their master, their owner, the one who works in the sons of darkness, that guy hates what God has done. And you see it here. God said, bless them. Look, I bless them. I bless them. I created a male and female. I bless them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We got all of that wrong now in society. Every one of those passages they're doing wrong. Not only do they not care for gender, the creation now has dominance over the one who is supposed to subdue it. It's all over the world. It's everywhere you go. The environment is the most important thing in the world. And yet God says be fruitful and multiply. Notice when they get off the ark, chapter 9. 
chapter 6, depravity is just taken over. <laughs> one man, Noah, that's righteous before God. He happens to have a wife and three sons and their wives, and they all go on the ark. They get done. They park the thing. For chapter 9, they come off of it, and as they get ready to do this, God says this. God blessed Noah, chapter 1, verse 9, and his sons, and said to them, Direct revelation, direct command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Look at Genesis 11. Verse 4. They, this is the people of the earth, these are the descendants of the sons of Noah. Come let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name. Whoa. Not the name of God. Not the creator. Let's make our own name. Sound familiar in society today? Everybody's building their own towers, aren't they? And look what they say. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Direct violation against God's commands. We know what you said, but we're not going to do it. See, there's a war against God. And when there's no nations, which he creates in this passage, right? You remember? What does he do? Changes their languages. Because he knows he's going to have every language before him. Changes their languages and pushes them around the world. See, this is God in missions, isn't it? Go with me a little further. Look at chapter 12. The great covenant made with Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country from your relatives and from your father's house. Time to get away from family. We're going to start something new here. <laughs> and I will make you a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. And I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and the one who curses you I will curse. Now here's the phrase we're after. And in you, that's the seed of Christ, in you, there's a seed that all of the families of the earth will be blessed. All of the families. They tried to be one family. They tried to stay together. They tried to be their own God. But I separated them because I want to save people from every one of those languages. I want them around my throne. Look at chapter 18, verse 17. I just picked a few out, but you can pick more out in here. The trees of Mamre, Abraham and Isaac are old. They've been doubting the promise of God of this coming nation. Verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. That's Israel. But in him, here it is, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteous and justice so that the Lord may bring about Abraham what he had spoken about him. I want the nations. You can keep going. Look at chapter 22. Abraham has this son now, and he's got him on an altar. He's about ready to slay his only son, and God provides a lamb, a male lamb, caught with thorns, a, a crown of thorns around its horns. 
It's unblemished. And it takes the place of Isaac. In verse 16, we pick up the narrative. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will bless you, and I will, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and the sands which are on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of your enemies, of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God loves missions. God loves the people of the world, and he is drawing them to him. There are so many more throughout the Pentateuch and many of the prophets, but jump to Psalms with me. The psalmists just pick up on this uh, so often, so many. I, I just want to read three to you, but start in uh, Psalms 22 with me. I hope you mark these verses. They're great mission verses. The psalmist says this after speaking of Christ, and it's a very messianic psalm. You, you see our Lord's uh, uh, suffering in this. It's such a clear messianic pointing forward to the suffering of Christ. And as he begins to wind this praise psalm up, even in the agony of one who is dying, he says this in verse 27, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. That's Revelation 5. That text is pointing forward. That's all the nations. That's why we go. That's why we get on planes. That's why Gina and I do what we do. We, just, we can't wait to get there. We can't wait to see them. And we know you can't all go with us, but we're going to bring pictures back so you can see it, so you can believe the word of God. You can believe that he's doing that. And you'll keep giving, and you'll keep praying, and you'll keep being a part of this gospel work here because you want to see that done, and you're going to be a part of that great chorus. Oh, it gets better. Psalm 66. Oh, this is such a great psalm. I wish I had time like in the Philippines when I preached for three hours. <laughs> well, I don't have a voice left. Oh, look at 66. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. I mean, it's just not rocks and hills and trees, you know. I think you think of that. He's talking about people here. It's people that he cares about. It's people who are redeemed. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praises glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. When's the last time you said that? The Bible just tells you, say to God, how awesome are your works. Said that lately? Because the greatness of your power, your enemies will give framed obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. That's Revelations 5. Come and see the work of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turns the sea into dry land. They pass through on rivers on the foot. There, there, let, uh, there let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. He his eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. He's watching the nations just over the page, chapter 67, verses 1 through 7. Be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Sound familiar? That's Numbers chapter 9, the great benediction given by Moses. That your way may be known on the earth and salvation among all nations. I wish you could see my Bible. I have that word all circled right there. He's saving people from all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
the nations be glad and sing for joy. You will be judged, the people of, with uprightness and guide of the nations on earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, bless us. God, bless us that all the ends of the earth may fear you. Jump over to the book of Isaiah. We've got to look at the prophets. Isaiah chapter 45. Verse 21, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them counsel together. Who has announced this from the old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is, there is none except me. Turn to me and be saved. Look at this, all the ends of the earth. This is his message. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth. Turn to me, all the languages and tribes. For I am God, and there is none other. And I have sworn by myself, and the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. I will not turn back. That in, to, to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Do you think that's where Paul got that from? <laughs> that's Philippians 2, isn't it? Philippians 2 and 3. Go to... Isaiah 49. I think this is one of my favorite missions verses. Verse 6. These are all promises of the Messiah, the servant, leader of Jesus Christ. He says, that's God speaking here, it's too small a thing that you should be a servant, to be my servant, to rise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore my preserved ones of Israel. He's going to do that. But that's just, that's not his only goal, right? His goal is much loftier than just the nation of Israel. Look at this. I will also make you a light to the nations. So that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. After you fly 23 hours. <laughs> six hour drive and a bumpiest road you've ever been in come to a jungle, drive into it, and find a bunch of believers, you go, yep, Lord, end of the earth, here they are. Just like you said. It's so comforting when your back hurts and you're tired and traveling and you're jet lagged, but you go, oh my goodness, here we are at the end of the earth and God's gathering people. See, that's what it's about. Man, the the apostles caught on to this. Paul says in Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseen that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. I mean, they just pick up on this. And, and they are going, okay, we've, we, the nation of Israel won't listen. We're going to the nations now because that was God's plan in the first place. And they quote these Old Testament texts in this New Testament proving that God wants to save nations. And that's his goal. It's always been his goal. Well, I've got to quit here in a minute, but look at the fourth point there, D. Christ's mission endeavor is undeniable. Who will he use? Well, just look at the end of Chapter 5, flip back there with me. He tells us, look, he's, we're going to be his kingdom. Priest to our God. We're going to reign on the earth with him. That verse is so clear, isn't it? 
all because he was slain for us. But then John looks in verse 11, and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders as the mark of the redeemed and, and the created beings. The numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands is a Greek way of saying innumerable. Zeros that don't quit is the idea of that language there. That's how many people God has rescued from this planet. They're all around the throne, and notice again with a loud voice, they're saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. They're repeating that. They never forget the gospel. They never forget the finished work of Christ. If you think you're going to be in heaven and never forget, you're going to forget the cross and just go on living on your gold streets, forget that. You're always going to remember he was the slain one for us. It'll be the focus point of our worship. And notice, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, that goes to the Lord, not to us. <laughs> That's what the prosperity gospel gets wrong. They go, oh, we get the wisdom, we get the glory, we get the power. No, no, that's what he gets. We're as worshipers, and it starts now. If you're dead broke, it starts now. If he's entrusted you with great, it starts now. We're worshipers. And he gathers us in. Notice in verse 13, in every created thing that which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the seas and all things in them. This is an inclusive statement. There's, there's none of God's elect missing. I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, targeting the, the finished work of Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. And the four living creatures kept saying this, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. Because God accomplished what he said he was going to do. And brothers and sisters, let's do things God's way. Men, be men. I'm going to get to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. <laughs> He's going to say, men act like men. That's a big problem today. It's a huge problem. Women, act like women. You bring me great glory when you live your life as a woman. You bring me great glory, men, as you live like a man. Godly men, godly women. Biblical roles fulfilled. Bringing glory to God with whatever we have. Bringing them to Him. This is His goal. And you can see this and you can know. And I love this passage because this tells me, yes, it's hard. It's difficult down here. We understand Solomon's world. We, we live underneath a fallen world, under the sun. It's vanity at times. It's just a struggle, isn't it, here at times? But this text says it's all worth it. This text tells us that God's going to complete everything He promised to complete. And you can go. And you can pray, and you can give, and you can serve, and you can worship, knowing that this is going to be fulfilled. Amen? Hey, I hope you're awake. Somebody's got to be here. And I hope you're part of this. I, I, I'm fired up. I, I really am. I, more than ever. I can't wait to show you pictures and stuff on, on Wednesday to show you what God's doing. And we got, we got guys that are going around the world here. And we got young people overseas right now in this church. Praise the Lord. And we got people who are witnessing in Ormond and Daytona and Lake Mary. And, and I, I'm thinking where you all live in Palm Coast. Keep doing the work. He's going to win. 
And we're going to see that lion who's a lamb slain for us. And we're going to sing with the chorus of the myriads. Father, we thank you that you chose to do missions. Your first command was to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The world hates you, God. They're trying to empty the earth. They're trying to empty the wombs. They don't want anything to do with this, Lord. But not you. From the beginning, you told us to fill this earth. When they didn't want to fill it, you divided their languages so that you could save people from every tongue and tribe and language. And you've been doing that through the ages, Lord. You rescued people, brought them into the nation of Israel, even way back then. Your son came and saved not only Jews, but Canaanite women, Roman Cisterians. The apostles turned to the nations and preached the gospel. Eunuchs, Ethiopians. Nation after nation, people from every tribe coming to know you, Jesus. Lord, help us not be sitting on our hands here. Help us to be involved. We can pray, we can give, we can go. Lord, there's so much to do. But in the end, we see this in chapter 5. This is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you're there, Lord. <laughs> and you're giving us this promise that these people are going to be in front of you, and we're going to be a part of that. And so, Lord, I pray that we start praising and worshiping the slain one now in all preparatory work for that great day. Lord, thank you for letting us preach your word. Thank you for letting us hear it today, Lord. Thank you for sending your son where he would be slain for us so this word means something to us. Lord, help us fulfill our roles. Help us fulfill our calling, Lord. Help us finish well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.